0: You know, um, Christmas is a happy day time of the year, Um, but it's very hard for me to um, be happy at this time because we're about to lose our youth pastor, and as well, uh, Jim and Kathy, who have meant and continue to mean so much to our church, uh, both families are moving away. And um, it's almost like losing both arms. And um you know i I have to be honest with you, I have to try very hard to remain joyful um because we you know we have known them for so long, uh, and they are a, a, a big part of what we do, who we are and what we do in this church that um losing them is really um not good at all, but you know they're Moving on to new journeys and new chapters in their life, and we must be happy for them. We are happy for them. I spoke with uh, Jim just uh, a couple days ago, actually as late as yesterday, to see, you know, how his their trip to Lincoln, Nebraska, went. And they got stuck on the other side of the of the um, on their way back, traveling back. They got stuck on the other side of the pass. And so I'm not sure if they're back yet. I'm sure the pass is now uh, open. Yes, they're back. All right. That is, that is good. Um, and, and so uh, I think that uh, both families are in escrow now here and are also looking for uh, a home. And I, and I just, just heard that uh, uh, the Jatars have found a home over there in Tennessee. We're very happy for you, but I'm still sad <laughs> for, for, for myself and for us. So with that, let us go ahead and bow our heads once more for prayer. Heavenly Father, your people are here. And we're here longing for some word from you. Lord, give your word now in abundance, in superabundance. In Jesus' name, amen. So today I decided to use my laptop. Uh, and I had prepared all of these nice slides for you. But it's not working. I, had, I got it to work this morning. But for, some, for whatever reason, it's not going through. So let me just kind of, uh, let me see, you know, if I can have a last-ditch effort to try to revive the dead. Here, Um, if not, we're just gonna have to go without it. You know, all all that work, my all the work I put into this, (laughs) Um, but it doesn't seem to be working at this point. Um, So I don't know what to what to say. Let's see now. Um, Nothing there, Scott. Nothing at all. Oh boy. All right. Well, we're gonna have to use our Bibles uh, this time. All right. So I want you to just open your Bibles uh, with me uh, to our key text today, uh, uh, of our study today, which is um, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, and we only read uh, uh, the first verse of uh, 4, 5, 6, 7, 4 verses, uh, going all the way to verse 7. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. Philippians, of course, is one of the latter uh, letters of the Apostle Paul, and uh, it was—it's perhaps—it's a very ironic thing that the most joyful book in the entire Scripture was written in a prison cell. It was written in a jail, in a Roman jail, about the year sixty-one, sixty-two A.D. Um, so I, I had some pictures here, I, I you know, for you to, to, to see where you know in Rome, where the traditional um, jail where where Paul. Uh, so, so they say was was jailed uh, before he was executed. Um, was but but you know, obviously we cannot view it uh, right now. Here in the cell, Paul waited for the inevitable. He he you know he he must have sensed his death as he was writing uh, this this letter in this you know damp and dank and dark um, d- dungeon of a prison. Um, don't, we don't know whether it was months, weeks, or even days before he was to die. But if you read the whole um, letter of Philippians of Paul to the Philippians, by the way, he was also jailed in Philippi, before, you know, years back. So he had a lot of memories uh, here in, in Philippi. It's you know some of that we read about in in the book of Acts um, in in the New Testament. Here in this dungeon, in this prison cell, Paul wrote his most cheerful letter, and there's nothing in it, even if you could see, you could sense in this letter, he, re- he references his, inc- his, you know, his death, he was already um, accepted, he has already accepted what seemed to him at that point inevitable that he was going to die. He was going to give up his life for, for the gospel that you could sense as you read and reread the book of Philippians or his letter to the Philippians, that it is not feigned his joy. You know, this cheerfulness, this ebullient character of, the, of, of, of this letter is not feigned. It isn't feigned. It isn't made up. And there is no hint of delusional cheerfulness. There is no hint at all of despair. Amazing. Only joy is what you find in this letter. So you ask, we ask ourselves this question, what is joy? We'd like to say, we like to say that joy is not happiness. Happiness, we say, is triggered by internal or external events and and internal feelings generated, you know, by these external events and can often be short-lived can be transient and, and temporary, we say. It is not meant to be something permanent, just like you don't want to be laughing 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You cannot sustain that kind of a, an emotional high. It is impossible. Um, that's not what th- you know, happiness means. That's not what it's for. But while happiness is not joy, we often use happiness as a mask for joy. And those two are not the same now let me ask you this question do you remember your mom telling you when you were a kid I remember uh, and sometimes you know uh, I'm still being reminded because I seem to have a a perpetual sweet tooth Uh, I like sweets but do you remember your own mother telling you when you were a kid not to eat candy before a meal of course you probably do and mom would say it will ruin your dinner don't do it right And, of course, she's right. It's, you know, it's what we call a sugar buzz, right? All the empty fructose calories um, you just ate before dinner has now fooled your body into thinking that it's actually full. It doesn't need all those good calories you should be taking filled with, you know, the uh, complete protein and vitamins and, and minerals. So your sugar fix has masked your need for something deeper, something more meaningful, something what, that your body really needs. So a lot of times happiness, as well as other things such as sex, uh, such as, um, um, you know, success, such as good circumstances in life, mask your real need, or can mask your real need for joy. But what is joy? Well, Joy, first of all, is a character trait. It is, as we say, a spirit, a way of seeing and interacting. Joy is a philosophy of life. According to Philippians chapter 4, the, the, the text we just... Uh, we, uh, uh, let, let me go ahead and just, just read um, the rest of that, uh, uh, our, our text that says... um And here we find you know we're, as, as we, we're going to unpack in just a few uh, minutes here, that joy contains really three basic things. it contains, according to scripture, according to this uh, this scripture here, joy contains three basic things. I want you to if you have a pen or, and a paper right in front of you, uh, just go ahead and write it down all right I, I had it all uh, project, uh, you know ready there for projection, but it's not working today so um All right, so we're going to have to go uh, without it. So three key dispositions of joy. The first one is this, a disposition of kindness towards others. That's the first one. And second one is a disposition of well-being in all of life's circumstances. That's number two. And number three, a disposition of safety and protection in an unsafe and insecure world, all those, three, all those, all these three things, all these three things, uh, are contained within what we could say as a a philosophy of joy, a worldview filled with joy. You see, joy wells up not as not a sudden and intermittent act, like you've heard the phrase before. I'm sure. Uh, what is it? Let's see. Um, random acts of kindness it's not like that at all although of course you know we could use a lot more of that joy wells up once again let me repeat myself joy wells up not as sudden and intermittent acts but as a gentle and steady stream flowing towards others that's joy um the, um, the the translation that I'm using is the ESV, and in that translation, um, the the word is actually used there is is the word reasonableness, not not your everyday English word you would you you would use reasonableness. Um, it actually means a lot more than just you know being a reasonable person. Um, it, it, it you know this word uh, is is contains a lot more deeper meaning. Uh, In it, all right? It means a person who has developed a kind, gentle, generous, and a yielding spirit. That's what it means. Someone who does not see the need to always insist that his or her rights must be respected. And someone who does not act as if he has a chip on his shoulder. Or someone who moderates his or her own actions in pursuit of a higher and nobler goal beyond self. So that is a a very key component of this philosophy of joy. A spirit of kindness, a spirit of gentleness, a spirit of generosity, a yielding spirit, not a doormat. But someone who doesn't feel the need to always assert his right when it is violated or seems to him to be violated. Reasonableness is no less than grace. Understood deep in the soul, lodged deep in the soul, and put into gentle, kind, and generous action. In other words, it's, it's, something, it's grace that has that, that, that permeated the inside of a person, that it's welling up into acts of kindness, not because the person is pretending, but because that's who the person has become. A gentle person, a person who has a yielding spirit, a yielding disposition. Gentle, kind, and generous towards others. And um, to illustrate this, I read a story not too long ago, a Billy Graham's story. When I was in seminary, I had the privilege of actually um, I had the privilege of, of becoming part of a Billy Graham Crusade as my seminary. All the seminarians went, and we all helped out in some little ways. And in that huge crusade, it was at that time, it was held at the Jack Murphy Stadium. And we were all there for several nights, and you know, we tried to help us as much as we could. And there he was, this great man, Billy Graham, preaching every night. Such simple, powerful message with that booming voice, southern accent and everything. So beautiful. Um, the story was told of Billy Graham, and it was told by his own daughter, Anne, um, she explains, you know, what reasonable gentle disposition means. Um, Anne says that when when she was 17 years old, um, she got into an ac- a car accident. Uh, she was driving too fast down uh, a mountain road, uh, something that uh, uh, um, I am guilty of as well. I don't want ticket. Versus, uh, <laughs> I don't want that kind of ticket, Gary. Um, but um, I've, I, I must confess, I've had tickets like that before. I've driven too fast before. And get this, I, drove, I was driving to church on Sabbath. And I was stopped by a car, a cop, in front of me. And I was looking behind me thinking, oh yeah, there's no cop behind me. He was in front of me. He clocked me, 80-some, you know, something like that. Down from, uh, down going to Bishop, as a matter of fact, it was years ago, Uh, from from all the way from Mammoth to Bishop, and you know, I, I couldn't blame, I couldn't blame the lay of the land. I didn't have the heart to do that, so I just accepted it. I said, sorry, I'm headed to church. (laughs) So when Anne was 17 years old, she she got into an auto accident, and she was driving too fast down that mountain road where where they lived, and she smashed into her neighbor's car, Mrs. Pickering's car, wrecking her car and damaging Mrs. Pickering's car extensively. And so she came home, and and she said she, she was so afraid she avoided her dad, but her dad seemed to keep running into her. Um... And so she tried to avoid him all day. Then she finally ran into him in the kitchen and she couldn't escape him anymore. And and Anne froze, she says, and and she ran all you know what she froze for what seemed to her like forever, she says. And and then finally, you know, she came around and she ran to her dad and threw her arms around her neck and started sobbing on his shoulder. And then she fessed up. And she says to her father, It was my fault, Dad. I'm so sorry. I was driving too fast. Something that we remind our son every day when we see her driving down 80 and she's driving 80 on 80. Scary. And Anne remembers four things that her dad said to her and it stuck to her all these years. And these are the words Anne says, relates. Billy Graham said, Anne... I knew all along about your wreck. Mrs. Pickering came straight up the mountain and told me. And I was just waiting for you to come and tell me yourself. That's why he was running into his dad. She was running into her dad. Because he was doing it, probably. He was, he was trying to angle. And then he said, I love you. That's the second thing he said. And The third thing he said was, we can fix your car. And the fourth thing he said... Was you are going to be a better driver because of this? Such kind words, such gentle disposition—it's not something that just you know just you know gushes out immediately and just disappears. The idea is, it is it's 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 it's, it's a steady streaming flow of kindness coming from the heart to the hands, to the feet, to the mouth, towards others. That is joy. But joy is not only that. Joy is also, and I want you to write this thing down if you can, joy is a deep, that's the second second point, joy is a deep and abiding sense that our well-being, our your well-being comes from a better place than your circumstances. Anxiety gives way to joy when we realize that our sense of well-being is not tied to our circumstances. And often we want it, we desire it It's so much better to tie it to our circumstances. Why? Because sometimes it just feels so good to feel crappy about things. To massage that, those hurt feelings let it fester for a little bit, for a while, and to not let go. But, but joy is not like that, because joy is not an emotional high or an emotional low. It is a deep and abiding sense, a spirit of, that, that, that says to you that you, all is well, even if all is not well. Because there is a far better place, a far better place where your your sense of well-being comes from, and that place is not the circumstances you find yourself in, in life. Anxiety, according to our text, anxiety gives way to joy when we realize that our sense of well-being is not tied to our circumstances, it is tied to God. So the Bible teaches us to shift our focus, shift our focus away from this, I'm not saying here, the scripture is not saying to deny, to sweep things under the rug, no, It's it's just a matter of shifting your focus, shifting your focus from self, which can get really easily hurt. From your circumstances, which is a mixed mixed bag, sometimes good, sometimes bad, to shift it from those things, away from yourself, to God. And joy, uh, joy wells up when the focus is taken away from self, is, is taken away from circumstances, and the focus is shifted, moved towards God and not to self, There are three actual crucial words um, that we need to understand here. It's found in, in verse 6, I believe, of, of our text here. So I want you to go back to verse 6. Um, here, I'm going to read that text again, that verse again. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. All right? So the three, the three words that I want you to pick out there are these. Prayer, number one. Number two is supplication, and number three is the word thanksgiving. So, if you can imagine these three words, they're you know they're as it were they're combining uh, the combination of these three words and three ideas. All right, is, is 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 helping you to move away from the circumstances and to take your circumstances, not to leave it over here. But to you know, to, but to not so so uh, focus on what's going on over here, but to be focused on who's out there, on God, and and, and you know uh, the, that word prayer. It's very instructive, as a matter of fact, because when you uh, when we look at that word prayer, it actually the, the word prayer there is actually the word prosévkome. Pros means going towards, away from yourself to 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 another person, to another place, like that. So pros. And then evkume is prayer. So it, it really means praying towards or prayer toward. That's what that means. Uh, you know, and and that's, that's the first thing that you, you notice there um, is that you know, joy is the ability to be able to not focus on yourself and your circumstances, but be able to take everything to God. And that's the second word, second word comes in. the word The word there is supplication, the giving away of all of life's circumstances to God, not just the bad ones, even the happy ones. Everything, according to Paul, everything, must be turned over to God in prayer. And the basic orientation of prayer is away from self to God. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, they used to pray facing the. You know this, right? Facing the what? The temple, and every time they went to the temple to pray, they would offer a sacrifice. And every time they offered a sacrifice, they truly believed in their heart that they're letting go of the circumstances of life, especially their sins. But all of life's circumstances are taken from them and put into the uh, the temple, where it is gathered the entire year. The entire year, it is piled up over there in that temple. And then at the end of the year, at Yom Kippur, the temple is cleansed. God cleanses the temple, and, you know, and all those sins are taken from the temple, and the following year, they start over. And so, can you imagine what went on in the psyche, in the, psyche and the mind, hearts and minds of the poor um, Israelites? when the temple was raised to the ground. They couldn't, for the longest time, they couldn't imagine life without the temple. Why? Because they had no place to unburden themselves. What would happen to us, they said? What would happen to us? Life would crush us. If we cannot unburden to God, life would crush us. But as Christians we say no you life doesn't need to crush you why because prayer can happen every moment of every day of each day and you can unburden to God anytime with all the circumstances of life great and small and then the third word comes in because this word actually helps things along because instead of focusing in, on yourself woe is me self pity And whatever you're going through, you know, um, whatever difficulties you're going through, licking those wounds, feeling sorry about yourself. Instead of doing that, he says, look beyond yourself. Look to God. Number one, that's prayer. Number two, take everything to God. And number three, he says, now, focus on the goodness of God. That's Thanksgiving, by the way. Focus on the goodness of God and focus not on the problems, as much as on the gifts that God is sending to, for your problems, for your circumstances. That's the essence of Thanksgiving. And you're doing that every moment of each day. That cycle, those three things prayer, supplication, thanksgiving all connive, come together to give you a sense of joy in life that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Can you imagine Paul sitting languishing in jail? And this is why he's able to write this. Letter, so f- so so uplifting, not contrived, but real joy. And we too, by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ, can have the same joy. This same joy is ours as well as it was for Paul. The Hebrews, as I said, understood prayer in this way. They're looking towards the temple and everything. And the third thing um, is that here is that joy is a deep, write this thing down, joy is a deep and abiding sense that even if the world is unsafe and insecure, we are safe and secure in the arms of God. And I've been memorizing, and, you know, uh, uh, psalms as just a perfect place to just bathe yourself in, 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 the, in, in, in that you know, sense of security. Um, Psalm 46, you know, God is our refuge and strength of very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the, hearts of the sea, heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake at its surging. There is a river whose stream makes glad the city of God. God is in the midst of her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. That's joy. That's joy. Joy is a deep and abiding sense that we are safe and secure. As God hides us in His pinion, according to Psalm 91, He hides you in His pinion. And under his wings, you will find refuge. Beautiful, majestic, poetic rendition of what it's like to experience the joy of God in this crazy world. The absence of fear in this fearful world. And you know, here in verse 7, Paul, you know, borrows a, a phrase straight from the, uh, from the Roman Empire book. You know, uh, the peace of God, he says, the peace of God will guard your heart and your minds. And mind you, this is not as a result of what you did, the first two steps. I used to think that. If you just pray hard enough, yeah, we've heard that before. If you just do that more, then God will give you his peace wrong i want you to note that that is wrong that's wrong-headed theology why because the peace of god exists whether or not you experience it that's the point the 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 peace of god is a current state of affairs in this world that exists in much different it's, it's it's a much different way than the peace of Rome existed in those days. Um, You know, as, you know, the peace of Rome was enforced, the peace of Rome or the peace of Caesar was guarded and protected and enforced by her ruthless legions um, um, and, and brutally subjugating peoples and nations to submit to her will. That is the peace of Rome. We are not after that kind of peace, according to, Paul, we after that peace of God. And that peace of God already exists whether you experience it or not. It is a current state, state of, of affairs ha- made possible by the, de- by, the, by the birth of Jesus Christ as Christmas. By his death and by his resurrection from the dead. What he has done is, is he's created a new reality in this world that he will consummate when he comes again. So this time of the year is called, in the Christian calendar, Advent for good reason. It is meant to, prevent, to, to, uh, it is meant to um, help us to refocus our lives, to be, re- to, to, to be ready for the soon coming of our King. He's already come once. He's coming again. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds, according to Paul in verse 7. It's a, you know, he borrows the, 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 that Roman concept of Pax Romana, right? And we may, you know, uh, today, you know, whatever Pax, maybe we could even refer to Pax Americana, that is not where we set our sense of joy in. It is the peace of God, not the peace of anyone else or anything else, but the peace of God. God's peace, you see, is guarded and protected by the Holy Spirit in your hearts and minds where they belong. In Jesus Christ. So if you're in Jesus Christ, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, there is new creation. There is is where peace exists. Guarded and protected by God's own legions of angels and by the Holy Spirit Himself and based in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He will guard you to the day you die. And that sense of security and protection will carry you through life's deepest valleys, through life's darkest shadows, and it will also protect your hearts and minds in life's highest peaks. It doesn't matter because that peace exists Independent of our experience, it is already there in Jesus Christ. So let us not settle for any sugar fixes. Shallow, temporary, ephemeral, fleeting. They will make us happy only for a little bit, but then they wear off. Would you want something that wears off? Have something that doesn't. A Wall Street Journal article titled, Even for the very rich, more money brings happiness. Can I repeat that? It doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's right. Even, Yeah, it is. Even for the very rich, more money brings happiness. Uh, written by Grant Donnelly and Michael Norton in 2017, December 7, 2017. Um, this article uh, references a research conducted by two no- Nobel laureates on whether millionaires can extract more happiness from their wealth. What a, what a study. What about those of us that aren't millionaire? We must be really living miserable lives. Um, so the, the, what they tried to determine was, is a filthy rich millionaire incrementally, in, that's the, and that's the key, incrementally happier than a small-time millionaire, One, two, three million. and the incremental value they use is twenty-five thousand dollars. That's you know increments of twenty-five thousand um, dollars, and they got a large sampling. There's a lot of millionaires around four thousand. That's a huge sampling. That's, that's you know whatever results came out of this would be you know if 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 the process was done right then this is a pretty good study of 4,000. Where, where do you get for 4,000 millionaires? Do we, have, do we have one here? Please send us one here, Lord. So, the, you know, the, the incremental value is $25,000. Um, so they went to work with that sample size and the questionnaire and whatever, what have you. Um, and the question was: Would the accumulation accumulation of dozens or hundreds of twenty-five thousand dollars push the needle toward life-changing happiness? So they said, a you know, a um, on a scale of one to ten, would there be significant difference in happiness between a one, two, three million dollar millionaire or to a filthy rich uh, as opposed to a filthy rich millionaire? Uh, And the result, millionaires worth $10 million or more reported greater happiness, but when they measured it on a scale of 1 to 10, only represented a fourth of one um, point. That is to say the needle only moved from between 1 and 2 over here. (laughs) Yeah? Between. So those of you that are wishing to be millionaires, all more power to you. But the word is this, the more money you have does not translate to how happy you will be. It wears off. So, you know, um, uh, Dale Carnegie um, instinctively knew this. And what did he do? Instead of giving all his, uh, his wealth to his family, he gave it away because he didn't want to ruin his entire family. By, by giving them a sugar fix, a sugar rush. Don't settle for a sugar rush. Settle for the real thing. Joy is the real deal. Joy, as inner disposition, spirit and character, will never wear off. Why? Because it is guarded and protected by Jesus Christ himself. It will stay true. It will stay the test of time. Don't settle for a sugar sugar bus. Settle for something that will stay true forever. Lord God, thank you for granting us your joy. The joy that comes from the peace that you bring. The peace that already exists in this world in Jesus Christ. Father, help us to focus on you each day. Take all of our life circumstances to you and focus on your goodness to all of us and transform us from within, making us truly joyful Christians, not just this time of the year, but all the time. In Jesus' name, amen.